0: Well, hi, Praxis. Thanks so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Please know that the Praxis staff is here for you. Uh, We're praying for you. We love you. And uh, don't hesitate. If there's something you need, um, please reach out. We would love to continue to minister to you. We know that meeting virtually is not ideal, and yet it's still a grace from God to be able to study the Word of God together. Tonight, we'll continue our series in the book of 1 Peter. So go ahead and open your Bibles and turn in them to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5. I will be looking at verses 5 to 11. So we're almost done with this epistle, and I trust that it has been both timely and profitable. Let me go ahead and read our section of scripture, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in verse 5. This is the word of God. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firming your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, indeed, we ask, Lord, for You to do the work only You can do. That You would humble us under Your mighty hand. That we would heed Your holy instruction. That we would see this as an opportunity not just to tune in on a Thursday night, but to take to heart um, Your voice. Lord, all that you have provided in your word that your people might be built up. Lord, I know many of us are tired and restless. And so, Lord, we pray that we receive much nourishment from the scriptures. That we would be fed and encouraged to live in a way that would be pleasing in your sight. In a way that would honor Jesus as we seek to follow him. And so, God, we pray that this would be a time of equipping and training that we might be stirred towards greater growth and maturity in the things of you. And uh, we pray that your spirit would be here to convict and guide this time, that we would not depart from Scripture, but hold fast to it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How are you doing? Now, before you say, oh God, this again, and you're tempted to just close your browser or stop streaming, hang in there. I know it seems like most sermons these days start off the same exact way with that very question. And don't get me wrong, I don't mean to patronize. I get it. We can all sense how the longer this quarantine goes, the more worn down we are. Sheltering in place has taken a toll on us, physically, mentally, spiritually. We're experiencing cabin fever and Zoom fatigue. We're sick of the alternatives, the restrictions, the lockdown. Frankly, in this season, we're flat out tired. We're tired of being asked, how are you doing? Because the answer always seems to be the same. Shoot, I'm tired of asking the same question. No doubt for most, this has been a difficult stretch of life. The stress and strain are at an all time high but even in the midst of COVID-19, we are pointedly reminded that much of the Christian life requires a greater perspective, a long obedience in the same direction, if you will. Much of the Christian life is about perseverance, running a race in which coronavirus is but one leg in the marathon. So, we trust that the God who has sovereignly ordained this unwelcomed, unpleasant situation is the same God who will supply us the grace in it and through it. And I say that intentionally. We must keep our eyes on the right goal. Not merely the light at the end of the tunnel, but the light now. Not mere survival, but sanctification, growing even while we're holed up in our homes. We don't want to just get out of this pandemic, but to also get much out of it as well. And with that as our aim, we turn to a section of scripture that teaches us how to persevere. As Peter closes this epistle with some final thoughts, he equips his audience with truth that will enable them to endure. Under times of intense suffering and persecution, he encourages them to hold fast, to stay the course. And today we find ourselves in a similar context. And Peter's words still ring with relevance. If we're going to make it as Christians, if we're going to persevere in and through coronavirus and whatever else may come our way, we need to heed Peter's instruction. The apostle provides three necessary components to persevere, to continue to grow and stand firm as followers of Jesus Christ. And the first, the first is that he shows us the posture of perseverance, the posture of perseverance. Because if we're in it for the long haul, we're going to need to be humble. Look again at verse five. Peter writes, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Now remember the previous section. And Peter begins talking about church governance, church dynamics, exhorting the elders, that is the leaders of the church, to shepherd the flock, to exercise oversight, to be an example And now the apostle pivots from the pastors to those in the pews. Peter addresses the rest of the church, specifically the younger. Because when you're young, let's face it, you're more brash and impulsive. The young are more likely to rebel and be difficult. So Peter doesn't beat around the bush. Be subject to elders. Submit to your pastors. In essence, he calls us to adopt a spirit of humility. And really, in the end, no one escapes this exhortation. While Peter has spoken both to the elders of the church and those younger in age and faith, he prescribes the same medicine for everyone. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. Think about that image, clothing. Clothing is what covers us from head to toe it's what's visible about us you see when it comes to fashion and wardrobes the christian's favorite brand is humility the christian's most worn article of clothing is an apron peter has the picture seared in his head jesus towel tied to his waist humbly on bended knee, washing the disciples' feet, washing his feet. In praxis, no servant is greater than his master. So we wrap ourselves in humility as well. Here's the incentive for doing so. The text continues, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word for opposes is a military term. It's used to describe soldiers lining up for battle, getting ready to fight. Now how's that for a word picture, for motivation to be humble? Every occasion to pride is an open declaration, is a booming salvo to wage war against God himself. Pride calls God to bring out his armies, but humility, humility cries for grace. That you want him on your side and what's good for life within the church is good for all of life verse 6 resumes humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of god so that at the proper time he may exalt you now i want to be clear and careful here humility cannot be artificially manufactured or simply mustered up by our own efforts. You know what I'm talking about? Where you put on the facade, the show of what you think humility should look like, where you're soft-spoken, timid, or you glibly respond, praise God to every compliment thrown at you. Listen, you you can't just act humble because it's exactly that, an act. The appearance of humility is not the same as the heart. False humility is truly prideful. Look, I love the C.S. Lewis quote on humility just as much as anybody else, right? You know what I'm talking about? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Pretty witty, right? Catchy. But we need to realize Lewis is talking about the fruit of humility, not the root of humility. He's not instructing us on how to be humble, but the byproduct of the humble. The question remains then, what's the secret to humility? Well, let me try to answer. Humility always accords with perceived and accepted truth. Let me illustrate. If you could talk to, say, LeBron James about basketball, you don't have to force yourself into a posture of humility, right? No, you are humble. Why? Because in his presence, it's a byproduct of understanding the situation, of acknowledging and accepting who he is and what he has done. When it comes to the game of basketball, LeBron James is in another category he is greater far better than you and you you just need to realize the truth that is when humility is cultivated so the same with God but on a greater level on a universal scale when you recognize that he is in a separate category that he is glorious over all. You will be humble. I mean, if you trace Paul's prayer for the churches, as far as I know, he never prays for greater humility. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't pray for greater humility. He prays for greater understanding, a deeper reverence and recognition of God and the wonders and glories of the gospel. And when that truth sits heavy upon our hearts, then we bend the knee. Then we're humble. Humility is a proper response to who God is and what He's done. And you see it here in our text tonight. Look at the view Peter is presenting to us. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Mighty hand of God is a loaded phrase. It would have triggered the minds of Peter's readers, teleporting them back in time to a particular incident, the 10 plagues, the Exodus. You remember that story? Back in Egypt, the contention was over who was really large and in charge. Was it Pharaoh or the God of Israel? And so they have a competition of power, at least for the first two plagues, right? Water turned into blood. You have froggies swarming the land. Pharaoh and his magicians are able to keep up. They're able to replicate those signs. But from there, God leaves him and his cronies in the dust with the next eight plagues. Gnats, flies, dead livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and finally the death of every Egyptian firstborn. Until by Pharaoh's own confession, this must be the finger of God. Until it is indisputable, undebatable, who is really mighty. You see, God's mighty hand only brings about two possible outcomes. Devastation or deliverance. The choice is ours. Like the Egyptians We can foolishly try to exalt ourselves over God's mighty hand, leading to our own demise and destruction. Or like the Israelites, we can humble ourselves under his mighty hand that he might bring us out. He will exalt us in his perfect timing. Peter is saying, humble yourselves, or God will do it for you. His mighty hand will either crush you or care for you. Which ought to nurture humility in our hearts. Verse seven continues, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you." Now notice what's easy to overlook. This cherished verse, the one we've committed to memory, it doesn't stand on its own legs. Peter doesn't begin a new sentence here, cast all your anxieties on him. No, he continues his previous thought process. Humble yourselves, therefore, casting all your anxieties as an extension of the last verse, as a further unpacking of humility, which teaches us the way we maintain a posture of humility is putting ourselves under God's mighty hand until we've actually put it into practice. A recognition of his sovereign power expressed, demonstrated, proven in what we do. In bringing him our anxieties. Anxiety is not inherently sinful. It's how we respond to it. Our reaction to our worries reveal what we worship. Where we believe the the strength and the solution to truly be. That's why even Jesus prays. Because God is the one with the mighty hand. So praxis, take inventory of your life. You know, when issues arise, is your reflex to rely upon your own ingenuity and smarts to figure it out or to turn to and mull over God and his wisdom found in his word? When racked with all sorts of concerns, is your mind just racing for a quick fix Or are you quick to fix your eyes on God through prayer and petition? I mean, even with the coronavirus, all its effects, consequences, uncertainties, fears, and opinions on how to handle it. Are we merely defaulting to the expertise of doctors, economists, politicians, our friends, even our pastors, to the neglect of seeking God? It shouldn't be so. Christian, our anxieties will either drive us towards God or away from Him. So treat your concerns as you treat your sins, bring them to Him. This is where humility and perseverance intersect, where they collide, where the rubber meets the road. We like to be in control, do we not? We like to know where the ship is heading. But there are times our vision is clouded by the great unknown, whether it's unemployment, if we ever get married, or when we can regather as a church. In all these circumstances, will we be humble enough to still obey God and persevere? When we can't see, will we trust in God's mighty hand that he will guide us through? In pre-COVID days when your Uber arrives, it's silly to keep wearing a heavy backpack if you have one. I mean, you could if you want, but you're free from shouldering the load. You can put your backpack down and just relax, rest, because the weight has been transferred to the vehicle. Wear it or not, the car is going to carry you to your destination. Christian, Worry or not, God will carry you and your burden. Cast them on him. God cares for you. And this is why this verse is so loved. Because it tells us we are. Pause and just take that in. God does care for you. God is concerned more so than you are. The omnipotent God of the universe takes interest in your daily struggles, in your afflictions. Beloved, because that's what you are, let that wash over you until that reality causes you to be humble. That the mighty hand of God is eager to embrace you, to hold you, to hold you fast. Man, it's these simple truths we never outgrow. A childlike awe that only gets stronger the longer we walk with God. You see, the sign of Christian maturity is not growing independence from God. The sign of Christian maturity is a growing dependence on Him, one that is humble enough to bring Him our worries. Now, don't misunderstand. Just because we cast our cares doesn't mean we're careless. After all, even prayer, we know, isn't a passive exercise. It is intense labor. It is active when we pour out our heart to God. And though this verse is an encouragement to be freed from worry, we're not freed from the work. Which leads us to the second component of perseverance. We examine now the practice of perseverance. The practice of perseverance. Hey, guess what? We got to do it. And we need to be informed about the situation, about our surroundings as we endure, what we're up against. So Peter tells us, look at verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now earlier in this book, Peter has already charged us to be sober-minded and watchful. And the repetition here highlights the importance, the seriousness, that this should characterize our approach to life. Be alert and prepared because your adversary, your opponent is the devil. Listen, guys, Satan is real and alive. The Bible tells us he is an accuser, a slanderer. He is our enemy. And lest we be cavalier towards him, Peter likens him to a lion. Be on guard and sober minded because to be inebriated, caught off guard when you're next to a lion is to welcome death. Now our perception of a lion probably needs to be adjusted. We tend to think of a animal that is tame and domesticated. Maybe we recall times we went to the zoo only to see this big cat, but behind bars. And so much for majestic and fearful, right? Instead, if we're lucky, we'll catch the lion to be awake. But most of the time, the king of the jungle is either snoozing or too lazy to move. Sounds like me on a hot summer day or any day. But this animal analogy would have connected with Peter's audience. Their experience with lions wasn't watching them at the amusement park. No, they were the amusement as a gruesome form of persecution and torture, the Romans would round up Christians into their Colosseum and then unleash hungry lions on them as entertainment, as sport. Peter's words would have sent his readers into a dark place. Memories still haunt them. They can still see pieces of flesh flying, limbs torn apart, Blood painting the ground as fellow believers are brutally mauled to death by vicious lions. They would have gotten it. The devil prowls around not as a little kitty to trifle with, but as a wild beast seeking to devour. He roars to strike fear, to disorient us so that he can destroy us. But that's why we need verse 9 in this letter as a source of encouragement so on the one hand while some of us have a tendency to downplay dismiss the existence and influence of the devil peter at the same time doesn't want us to over exaggerate him either which leads to verse 9 resist him firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world Now, consider how strange this imperative, this charge is. In the scriptures, we're told to put as much distance as possible between ourselves and sin and temptation. We're commanded to flee the love of money, to flee sexual immorality. But here, we don't flee the devil, he flees us. James 4 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. How does this work? There's no magic potion or silver Bible bullet to ward off Satan. Peter tells us, pay attention, he tells us we resist by remaining firm. In other words, we don't fight the devil by facing him head on, but by facing Christ. As Pastor Kim likes to say, by fueling our faith with God's truth. And oh, we'll need God's truth. Because there are a variety of ways Satan assails and attacks us. In this verse, Peter is countering one of the devil's tried-and-true methods, one of his go-to strategies, lying. The Bible describes Satan as the father of lies, a manipulator of the truth. And the avenue he often exploits that is in our suffering. He roars that our misery... Our pain, our plight, is a sign of God's abandonment until the raucous of our pain drowns out the voice of our Savior until we feel alone. You see, if Satan can get you to think that you're forsaken, that contraverse 9, that God doesn't care for you, well, then he's isolated you. Then he can take you. And that's why Peter preempts this preparing us now with knowledge, equipping us with the truth of the matter before we are in the thick of the fire. Here is what you know, Christian. Satan schemes to divide and conquer, to dupe you into thinking that the suffering you're experiencing is so unusual, so unique to you that the only conclusion you can draw is that you've been deserted by God. And no one knows my struggle with same-sex attraction. No one gets how my family has disowned me for my faith. No one understands the darkness of depression that has swallowed me whole. No one, not even God. But the best way to combat this is to know that your suffering is a shared suffering. It's a common experience. Sure, maybe not in exact details, but something that happens to the brotherhood of all Christians throughout time and throughout the world. Now, in no way is Peter making light of the reality and significance of our hurts and struggles, but he is attempting to normalize it so that we know we aren't alone in our suffering, that there's strength in numbers. You know, I was reflecting on this personally You know what brings me encouragement when I feel my faith faltering, when I'm going through a difficult season in life like this quarantine? I think of you. I think of how you're persevering, that those suffering and separated at home, you continue to study the scriptures at night as a group, that you stream Sunday service together, that you Fight against sin through accountability and prayer. I think of how you continue to serve one another. You know, hosting and having surprise Zoom birthday celebrations, texting each other words of encouragement, dropping off unannounced baked goods, Oreo McFlurries, and loads and loads of bread. I mean, when we return from quarantine, it's going to be obvious how we've loved each other because we're all gonna have gained 50 pounds. At least that's gonna be my excuse. I think of you, I think of other churches, how even if we can't gather in person, we've been blessed by guest speakers from across the country. How worship continues in homes all over the nation. I think globally, how the message of Christ is still making inroads into unreached areas, how missionaries are sharing the good news of Jesus in Japan, how the church in China exists and endures even in the midst of harsh persecution. I think of how, yes, the the devil prowls and roars, but the gospel is still prized. The gospel is still proclaimed. People are coming to Christ and others are growing in the faith. And I find my footing. I receive my second wind. I dig deeper and press on. No matter what suffering I'm undergoing, no matter what struggles I have, I am not alone. I am not an anomaly. God has not forsaken his people. You all are proof to me. His word is true. His grace is sufficient. The gospel will go forth. God cannot be stopped. He shouts it. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It's a promise to us. And so we practice perseverance and push forward because the victory has already been secured. Finally and briefly, The last component is the power of perseverance. So we looked at the posture of perseverance, the practice of perseverance, finally the power of perseverance. Now this has been undergirding our passage, but now it takes center stage in verse 10. Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you the spotlight is placed on god which by quick way of application is much of the key to perseverance we move towards what we set our eyes on sin and troubles tempt us to shift our gaze but we press on when our attention is riveted on god so let me ask praxis where are you looking? Is it to weak substitutes? The high and escape of a fleeting pleasure? The comfort of a paycheck? The acceptance by your friends? Or is it to a God strong enough to sustain you for eternity? In this verse, Peter persuades us on why God is worthy of our attention. Why God's power guarantees our perseverance. In fact, I like the way the NIV arranges verse 10 because it matches the sequence of the original, of the Greek. The NIV renders this verse, And the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while, will Himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Did you hear that? It leads with God. The accent is upon him. It's almost as if our suffering is an aside. Just a small interruption. A slight detour in the grand scheme of things. Now we might wonder, how can Peter say such things about our hardships? Well, it's about perspective. It's like a husband who celebrates his 50th anniversary with his lovely wife. 50 years of blissful marriage. He might have remembered his ex-girlfriend all the way back in junior high. And sure, there's no denying how crushing the breakup was, how real the pain needled his teenage heart. But now, decades and decades later, he thinks little of it. And so will be when we enter into God's glory. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. That our afflictions can't hold a candle next to the glory that awaits us. So adjust your perspective. Shift your gaze. Focus on the hero of the story. That is what Peter is attempting to do, that when we keep our eyes on Him, on God, then we see our suffering rightly. We understand it in its proper context. The suffering we endure will be but a drop in the bucket of His eternal glory. After all, we know the order. It's ingrained throughout Scripture, that humility comes before honor, that the cross precedes The crown, that the last shall be first. But listen, don't miss it. Sometimes we stress the beginning of those catchphrases that we forget how they end. Hear it again. Honor, crown, first. Suffering gives way to eternal glory. Friends, this is verse 6 all over again. That for a time we go under his mighty hand because we trust he will exalt us at the proper time, in his good timing. We're not forfeiting glory. It's only delayed. We can be sure of this because it is God who will see us through to the end. In verse 10, the apostle features God and his activity through a series of verbs. In fact, it's emphatic. He himself God himself will take the initiative to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. You know why? Because we will mess up. I mean, read between the lines, isn't that the implication? We will need to be restored because at times we're going to ruin things with God and with others. We will need to be confirmed because we will stumble, even giving in to sin. We will need to be strengthened because in our moments of weakness, we'll want to throw in the towel. We will need to be established because the loss of a job or loved one will shake us to the core, tempting us to doubt God. But these four synonyms showcase that God is the one who will act on our behalf. He is where the power of perseverance lies because He will see to it. He will keep His own. And this is the mountaintop that Peter drops us on. Verse 11. So to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. In this benediction, the apostle hones in on one particular trait. And I want you to see it. Not on the infinite wisdom of God or his inexhaustible grace, though true and important. But when we're talking about perseverance, There's probably nothing more reassuring than knowing God holds all the cards. Kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but not so with God. His dominion, Peter says, is forever. And to Peter's audience, the irony is glaring. Because who's top dog at this moment? The Roman Empire. For all intents and purposes, Rome seems like the kingdom that will reign forever. And in contrast, the church. The church looks puny and nascent. Christians are scattered, so as if to say, what in the world is God doing? Is God impotent? Look, his followers are being persecuted, put to death, suffering. But things are not always as they appear. Our history books tell us Rome falls. And God's book tells us his dominion won't. And Peter sets the record straight from start to finish. By God's grace and power, we who have been born again to a living hope will endure to the utter end. It's what keeps these believers going. And it's what keeps Peter going all the way to his fate, to the end of his line when he is crucified upside down. And I will be the first to confess There are times this year, especially in 2020, that I've lost sight of this foundational truth. I wonder about the political landscape, where we're heading as a nation, and I grow anxious. I worry that if things continue, it won't surprise me if eventually pastors are thrown in jail, the church unfairly and harshly treated, my kids, if they come to faith, persecuting in ways I never imagined possible. And maybe you're hounded by similar or other concerns. You know, how I find employment in this kind of economy, this kind of market. You know, who's going to govern our nation? Who will be the president for the next four years? What's dating going to be like in this pandemic? I mean, it's already difficult navigating through a global pandemic, election year, racial tension, and the eroding morals of our society. But then to have to do so as a Christian, man, that takes the stress to a whole nother level. And yet I hope all of that doesn't lead you to just despair. But I hope that leads you to Him. I hope that compels you all the more to apply this passage. One of the benefits of this crazy year Is that it has humbled us you and i are not sovereign all wise and divine but praise god we don't need to be instead we can bank our life on his power cast our cares upon him and endure in the midst of suffering because he cares his dominion is forever and we stand firm because it's as that children's song goes He's got the whole world in his hands, including you and me. And that's good news, good enough to persuade us to persevere. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, how it buttresses our faith and is a robust encouragement, how it adds steel to our backbone because it points us to yourself, your promises, that you are a refuge and a tower, a present help in times of trouble. And so, Lord, we can humble ourselves under your mighty hand, casting our anxieties upon you, knowing that you care for us, knowing that the sovereign, omnipotent God of the universe orchestrates all things according to your wisdom, according to your plan. And, Lord, you will never forsake your own, but instead you even can... Use suffering and our afflictions for our good to refine us, to prune us, to make us more like your Son. And so, Lord, may we we believe that. Would you increase our faith that we might cling to your Word, cling to your Son, and grow and persevere. That we might have joy unspeakable and that you might be glorified in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.